Shouting. Um, there will be no shouting involved, though. Not yet, anyway. Um, first of all, uh, to all the students that have been gone this summer and are back, uh, it's great to have you back. We just give it up for all those students that have been gone this summer and are back. Pumped. Great to see you. Uh, secondly, today is a very special day for me. Uh, two very significant folks in my life. It just happened today to be their birthday. Uh, the first of which uh, was my five-year-old. I now am a father of a five-year-old. Um, it's like, guys are pretty excited about that. All right. Uh, that makes me the father of a five-year-old. I, I don't know exactly what that makes me. I, I feel old, kind of. And, you know, I also have two younger guys that make me feel older than my daughter does. But, and do you guys remember when you, like, graduated beds? That's what happened today in my house. Uh, my daughter, Avery, she had the princess bed, you know, that can, like, fit basically your right leg, right? And, um, and today, she moved into the queen-size bed, right? Uh, so it's, it's pretty, like, new purple curtains, new... Like, me and my wife barely have a queen-size, and my daughter's up, just rocking it. Uh, also, uh, Pastor Jeff, where are you at? Where's uh, Jeff? Jeff Brzezinski's birthday today, our pastor here. So excited. Um, we're, this is your party, bro. So we're, we're together here to celebrate the Lord, and, and you're just a part of it, man. So we love you, Jeff. Uh, happy birthday. Uh, last shout-out tonight. Again, no shouting involved. Uh, my brother Jared uh, Corzine, who's on staff here, preached last week. Just did a phenomenal job, man. And I, I don't know where he is in, in here, but it's so encouraging for me to be able to sit back and just uh, really get fed from the Scripture. And I felt like last week, uh, for those of you that were here, man, I just felt like he taught us and he fed us. And uh, obviously through uh, the grace of Christ. And so, Jared, super encouraged. Thank you, brother. Uh, I sit back just really, really blessed, man, uh, to, to be here. So uh, here, here's our plan. Um, if you came tonight uh, kind of wanting A plus B equals C, not going to happen. Our text tonight is uh, somewhat interesting. And uh, we have a lot of business to attend to. But I just want to remind you of the business that we've been attending to. Okay? Here's our deal. We've been studying the book of Hebrews. Okay? That's in the Bible in the New Testament towards the end. And uh, the book of Hebrews has one theme that's carried us from the beginning of the book all the way until now. And that's this. There is this old way of doing things. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the old Jewish understanding. But this new way, and this is the writer's contention, this new way is better. Because this new way is represented by the person of Christ, His uh, life and perfection, His death and resurrection. And because of that, this new thing is better. Hard for a Jewish audience to get because all they know is the old. But what we saw two weeks ago is that the old is better just in a word, the Hebrew word berith, because the old covenant was two parties. You fulfill yours, I fulfill mine, and this makes a covenant. What the Old Testament represents is that man will fail consistently, right? And so only God holds up his end of the covenant. Therefore, everything in the Old Testament is apart from God, a broken covenant. The blessing of the new covenant is that it's only on the back of God. There is no responsibility by man. Man is simply a benefactor of God's grace and love and the depth of it. Are you with me? So the new, therefore, is better. You're just a benefactor. I'm just a benefactor. Certainly called sons and daughters of His. But our role in the covenant solely rests on who He is. Are you with me? Okay. Now, that's where we were. What happens tonight is he fleshes out something really interesting and intriguing. So I want you guys to open your swords and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. 
If you're confused by the sword comment, I do apologize. Some of you are just whipped out your Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to read uh, the first 10 verses here in its entirety. And then as we do, we'll break this down verse by verse. And there are pictures tonight, so you should be excited about that. Here we go. Uh, chapter 9, verse 1. You guys all there? Say I'm there. All right, a good third of you. Here we go. Now even, verse 1, the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, verse 2, the first section in which uh, were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Verse 5, above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail, and some of you are very thankful for that. Verse 6, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself, and for the unintentional sins of the people, verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only, verse 10, with food and drinks and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. And I know there's many of you right now that are saying, Como se dice, right? A uh, long uh, text and just its understanding, but I'm telling you this listen, it may seem awkward and strange initially. If you hang with me tonight, I'm telling you, this passage has turned out to be really incredibly powerful. All right? So let's start in verse one. Here we go. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. It's unbelievable how much detail. God gave the Jewish folks in the construction of how it was they were supposed to worship. It's unbelievable how much detail and ornateness and creativity went into a God-ordained structure that the Jewish people were called to worship in. That brings us to an interesting topic of conversation, church buildings. Um, let's, let's hang here for a moment. I've uh, traveled internationally quite a bit. And I was involved in a youth choir in, in uh, high school. And also, I've, I've had the privilege of speaking at uh, many churches. What those three, uh, three things equal to is I've been in many different kinds of church buildings. And they're really, really peculiar. Um, some people really take their building serious. I mean, it's like hardcore, massive decorations. You wonder how they're affording it and still feeding the poor. And then you realize they're probably not feeding the poor. And then you think maybe they're not affording it either, right? And so it's just a big conundrum. Um, and then the other thing that's interesting about church buildings is I've seen, um, I've seen the most varied amounts of art in church buildings. Have you seen some interesting art? I literally, like, through all the church buildings I've been into, I've seen so many different portrayals of Jesus uh, being different colors, different genders, uh, different lengths of hair, like different eyeshadow on. Have you seen these, like, portraits of Christ? Where it's like, is that, is that a girl or is that Jesus? I'm not quite sure. Or is, are you meaning it to be the same thing? I'm completely confused. Um, it, it's, it's just an interesting place where people just feel like they can just put up whatever kind of art. Uh, let's agree with this. Uh, you've been in some interesting church buildings, right? 
some places where you like walked in, you're like, okay, this isn't what I'm used to. You really take that thing serious up there, whatever it is. Have you ever seen like the pulpit that like ascends and looks like it's an elevator uh, attached to a UFO? Have you ever seen that? <laughs> right, the pulpit that's like, uh, my last church we had one of those. It had this like big like top to it and it's supposed to in the olden days like effect volume. Anyway, one of the coolest churches that I've been in is this. This was in Ecuador, Quito, Ecuador. And that's me there in the second pew from the back in my prayer pose because that's what I do, always pray. And this church, uh, that's a joke, this church... Uh, was in the, the center of the historic piece of Quito, Ecuador. We are sending a whole team of 18 there here coming up in a couple months. Super pumped about that. But like when I was in this church, uh, it's, just, it's unbelievable like how much attention to detail, uh, just the creativity, the cost that this had to go into. And it just showed me like some people really, really take their, bu- their building serious. I would imagine that for those of you that grew up in the church, there was this propensity in you to think that, that somehow like when you walked in the church building, like all of a sudden like fireworks went off, right? And like it was there that God resided and nowhere else. It's like if, when you walked in that, that door, these doors, like all of a sudden you were on like holy ground and you, you know, um, that premise was, is really ingrained in us. What, what we're trying to do is teach our children something different. In the language of my kids, they call this place the church building. Um, when uh, the folks come over for a lot family to my house on Sunday, that's what my daughter calls the church. Daddy, the church is coming over today, right? Yes, honey. She doesn't mean that the building is all of a sudden going to be built in my basement, but she sees the people as the church. This concept of the building and its rules and its regulations is all ordained by God, coming from the mouth of God, and it's really connected to this principle of the Old Testament. In the Old Covenant, my question for you is, do you find yourself there as well? Still struggling to see this corporate encounter of God, the fullness of your experience of Him. What the writer's going to flesh out is much to the contrary. All right, Put up verse 2 through 5. Now, he goes on to describe this God-ordained, God-structured tent. For a tent was prepared, the first section which were the lampstand and the table, the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place, he says. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of the incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff was budded. We'll talk about that. That'll be interesting. And the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. It's not a cop out there at the end saying, um, I just have to move on, so I'm not going to spare you the details. This is a primarily Jewish audience who would have had some semblance of understanding of what this was. Uh, as for me and all of you, uh, we don't, okay? And so I brought pictures. Is that cool? All right, we're going to have some fun here. Okay, I drew this with a crayon this morning. Ah, crayon. Um, <laughs> now, I want to, uh, to kind of talk you through all the things that are happening here, all right? First of all, this is the full picture of the tent and the courtyard. 150 feet long by 75 foot wide, half of a football field. For those of you that have never seen a football field, please leave now. Um, (laughs) It was surrounded by a white linen uh, fabric, seven and a half feet tall around all sides, acting as a fence. The picture of this white linen was that it was encompassing and enclosing the holiness and the presence of God white for purity and the enclosure um, for the obvious. There's only one gate. Again, all this God ordained. Listen, God spends nearly 50 chapters in the Bible describing how to build this. 
50 chapters in the Bible, okay? If you just look at Exodus 25 later on in your, in your, you know, in your time alone with God, you'll see like all of this mapped out to a T, okay? Only one gate, it's on the east side here, 35 foot wide uh, by seven and a half feet tall, the, the rest of the fence uh, height. Now our little guy there, which I added with my crayon on the far right, will use him in his perspective. As you walk into the courtyard, you're going to see two things, okay? The first thing that you're going to see is a bronze altar. Uh, it was a sheath in brass. I've always just wanted to say sheath in a teaching before, so there's my moment. It was sheathed in brass, which I think means covered, covered in brass, and was primarily used uh, for sacrifice, okay? The other article that you'll see there with a couple of the uh, compadres around is, uh, was the basin. Now, the basin was a huge part, listen, of this ritual in worship because the priests had to cleanse themselves before they could make sacrifice. So we together. Now, it's in this outer courtyard, okay, that was a little bit more accessible. Uh, but things change when we start talking about the actual tent. Next slide. Uh, now, this looks pretty fun. Uh, I'm not sure if you've ever built a tent before. It probably didn't look like this. Um, 48 acacia beams held this up uh, that were 15 foot tall. Uh, this is a 45 foot wide structure. Uh, it has four layers of skin on the outside. On a hot day, would have been hot on the inside, okay? When you walk in to the first uh, curtain there that you see on the outside, a priest would have walked in. and we w- He would have seen three, uh, for lack of a better term, pieces of furniture. I'm sure you have these in your home. Uh, the first on the left there is a massive candle, uh, abra, for lack of a better term. These candles would have always been lit. This would have been a big a part of the priest's daily uh, practice and ritual was to keep the lamps burning, okay? So they would con- come in and clip uh, the lamps, and then the, the fire would keep, uh, would keep going. That's on the south side there. Uh, just across from it, uh, one of my favorites, uh, this table is where the bread of the presence goes. Now listen to this. Every Sabbath, uh, Jewish, Friday to Saturday, they would make 12 loaves of bread with uh, the finest flour. How many of you guys like eat some bread? You know what I'm saying? Yeah? How many, like, seriously, I used to really, I used to despise Subway, just mostly because of the commercials and the whatever the guy's name, we lost like 800 pounds. But now, listen, they added the honey, the honey oat bread. Have you had this? When that, when those morsels touch, I mean, it's, anyway, so the bread of the presence, every Sabbath they would make 12 loaves of the finest flour. Now listen to this. Um, only the priests could eat the loaves after they would replenish them on the next Sabbath. So picture bread sitting out on a table under four skins of layers for a week, right? We have a really good cracker at that point, right? But the priests were the only ones allowed to eat it. Now, right in front of the second curtain, you'll see a little um, stand. That's the altar of incense. All of these things covered in gold, fine, uh, uh, fine pieces of, of metal, uh, the altar of incense was burned every morning and every evening by the priests. Now, the altar of incense represented, among other things, the prayers of the people lofting in, in the thought to God. Interesting. Listen, this would seem like something that man created because we would come up with something like this. Like we would, and what I mean is like we would like throw a bunch of gold and the beams were gold-laced and they sat in silver sockets. Like this isn't, your typical, like, Cabela's tent. You know what I'm saying? I mean, this, this tent is hardcore. But all of this is completely commanded by God. And part of our journey tonight is going to be asking why. All right? So we find ourselves at the end, the innermost piece. 
uh, what our uh, scripture says, the most holy place, what we've called before the holy of holies. Listen to this, pretty cool. 15 by 15 by 15. Kind of fun, right? A perfect cube. Within the holy of holies, and you'll see there with the two stands on both sides, was the Ark of the Covenant, completely plated in gold. What was in the Ark of the Covenant was um, the two tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments. All right? On top of this gold-plated Ark were two cherubim and its four wings, again covered in gold. The top of the Ark was called the anyone? The something seat, the mercy seat. It was on the mercy seat, the only seat in the tent, the tabernacle, um, and it was where the blood was splattered by the high priest. Okay? Only the high priest was able to go in the Holy of Holies on one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. So this inner peace was really, really separated from everyone except one priest. There's two other aspects there in the Holy of Holies. The first is Aaron's budded uh, staff or rod. That was kind of an interesting mention. And it represents God's, um, God's intervention for the Jewish people. Not just in their uh, redemption from slavery in Egypt, but also just as carrying through the wilderness. Pretty cool. And uh, a bowl of manna was also on the ark, which we can all attest to what that would be like at that point. But what the manna represent was, was God's provision. Now, I sit back from all this and outside of pretty pictures and uh, little things that I colored on my own. I look, um, I, like the big thing I want to know is like, why, why does God do this? Why would God take what seems to be some trite things in like gold and silver? Listen, why would he do this when he sends his son in, in a manger? It seems a little bit contradictory, doesn't it? Like, why would you call your people to worship in something that's really creative and, and really expensive for the day? Gold, silver sockets, all bronze, all these things. And then send your son in a manger. There seems to be like a, a contradiction well, that would be what you would think, um, but there's actually something much deeper happening here. Listen to this. The whole process, go back to my last slide, the picture. The whole process of this tent and tabernacle, if you're a Jew, you can only, listen to this, come to the gate. That's as far as you can go. A normal layman Jew, you come to the door, and you're like, unless you're eight foot tall, all right, remember the fence is seven and a half feet, unless you're eight foot tall, like you're not seeing over it. So you know what's going on in your mind? What's going on in there? And that's a significant question because what's going on in there is the people's worship of God, all being represented by man. Are you with me? There would be this tension in you that's wondering, like, like when do I get to go in there? If that's where God resides, like, like when do I get to go experience the fullness of God? Right? So as a layman Jew, you're standing outside the gate in the courtyard. Only the Levites and the priests were allowed. In the first part of the tent, only the priest, and in the Holy of Holies, just the high priest. So the whole understanding of the Old Covenant is you do not have access to God, period. All of your access to God is through man, period. That's what it is. So why would God set all of this up? Uh, now, let me uh, show you something. Russ, can you come here for a second? You're a perfect example for this. Thank you. This is Russ, my good friend. Everyone say hi, Russ. Now, I want you to stay with me here. If we were doing a comparison of Russ and I, okay, and our beauty and our grandeur and everything about us, all right, and our point was going to be, our point was going to be, I'm incredibly ugly, and Russ is a phenomenal specimen of a, of a being, okay? This point would be made better, listen, the point would be made better if I was seen in a pretty good light too. 
Because if, if I just diminish myself to escalate Russ, like, it's like, well, that wasn't hard to beat. Like, of, of course you're better, right? Thanks, bro. That, that's, listen, all that he's done, the writer of Hebrews, has not been to diminish the old covenant, nor diminish this, but to show beauty and power and strength, to show how much better than Christ is. You see what I'm saying? So we did that with angels. He wasn't diminishing angels. Angels certainly serve a, a, a very distinct purpose in the beginning of Hebrews. What he's saying is Jesus is way better than them, right? He did the same thing with Moses. He did the same thing with Aaron. These men aren't insignificant. They're good, godly men that have followed and been leadership. He doesn't diminish them. Other, then it would make Christ to look, to look like nothing. No, he escalates them, but to the point to show that Christ is much better. So it must be then what's happening here. He must be showing us something in the structure, the form, the fashion of worship that it's very dictated and it's very ritualistic and it's very God is setting it up to show us something else. Well, what could that other thing be? If in the Old Covenant everything was represented in the process and the ritual and I'm consumed by the process, I can't get away from the process because it's the process that connects me to God through man then what happens when Jesus comes, lives perfectly, dies and resurrects, the veil tears in two, now I have full access to the person of God, and then all things beautiful, all things processed, all things ritualistic, are now all consumed in the character of God. I'm no longer distracted by the form or the fashion or the structure or the list, I'm now consumed by the beauty, the ornateness, the creativity, the power, the grandeur of God's character. Now that, under the new covenant, can become my complete focus. So now I don't have to walk into a building and look around and say, oh, what tremendous art. No, now I can simply look to the person of God and his character and be brought in to that beauty. You see what I'm saying? So all of this to show how much more beautiful, how much greater Jesus is, the depth of God's character sinks so much farther. Are you with me? The question is just, has that happened to you? Let me say it this way. You've heard me say this before if you've been journeying with us. If we take all this away, all of this, you never have any more corporate gatherings. We're never going to gather again, okay? And all of your relationship with Christ is based on you and Him solo. No more corporate gatherings, no more small groups, no more Bible study. It's all you and Him. My question is, what's left? What's left? Is there anything left for you? Are you encountering, experiencing the fullness of God in any way, shape, or form? Or is this it? Because if this is it then we might as well go back to the old covenant system in a sense. But the blessing of being able to personally, intimately connect with God is that on the daily basis, we get to get caught up in His beauty. So the beauty of a tent and a tabernacle and now no more distraction and just the beauty of God and His character. Are you with me? Now, He doesn't end here. He uses this as his building block to make this statement here in verse 6. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. 
but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year. And not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. In the Jewish system, worship was completely closed. It was only through man. But let me say this. How would you feel if every expression that you ever had or desired to praise and worship God through song, obedience, conversation, whatever it is, what if all of that had to be funneled through a person? It's hard for us to conceptualize because everything in our culture is me and God. Like, Jesus is my homeboy, God's my girlfriend, you know, like all this kind of language that, that takes the awe and the reverence of God and completely diminishes it. He's not our homeboy. He's our God. We should awe and respect Him. And instead of taking for granted this personal relationship, we should celebrate what we have. Because in the old covenant system, everything was through another man. You would have no encounter outside of a few exceptions of the greatness and the power of God. Do you understand? So much so that he says this in verse 8. Look at this. I love this. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. You can't get to God if the first section of this tent and tabernacle is still standing. You cannot access God, period. And he says, which is symbolic for the present age. Why? Because the Jews were struggling. All they know, all they are living in, all they understand is the old system. But the new system is, no, 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 through Christ. Through Christ we have strength. Through Christ we have, through Christ we have access. So much so that he says this in verse 9. Look at this. I love this. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of of the worshiper. Let's chat for a moment. Have you ever walked in here before or another setting? Having been on the, the hamster wheel of sin, dealing with something habitual, repetitive, whatever it may be. And you walk in these doors or you walk in the doors of another corporate setting, feeling the weight and the burden of that completely darkened conscience. And then you see like the first Christian smiling at you and you just want to punch him. Have you ever had that moment before? You know, like you walk in here and you're burdened and weighed down by this conscience that just feels so dark and so heavy. And you thought, and, and you thought to yourself, and maybe tonight, you're thinking like there's no way out of this. There's hurt, there's pain, there's financial stuff, there's relational stuff. And I know if you're like me, there's been points where you've thought there's no way out of this. There's no way. And you walk in here and then you see like all the happy Christian people, right? And you're like, like, is this even real? I don't understand. You know, and certainly it is in some senses. Like the joy of the Lord is our strength, of course. But it just frustrates you. Imagine that all the time. Imagine a darkened conscience where you can never be free to worship because the sacrifices will always have to keep coming. Imagine that. Imagine walking in this room, never freed by the grace of Christ, never having a clean conscience, never having repentant, and felt, listen, the weight of forgiveness. Have you felt that before? The depth of grace, the weight of forgiveness? Come on now. There are few senses in our understanding that are more freeing 
than when you lay your brokenness at the feet of Jesus and he says, you are completely mine. Your sins are washed away. I just, I remember those, and even if it's the, the, the repetitive, continual repentance over the sins that you're still struggling with, when God, when you have that sense of being wiped clean, there are a few senses we have in our understanding that are better. So imagine not having that ever. Next year we'll have to make more sacrifices, and tomorrow we'll have to make more sacrifices. It will never be done. The conscience of my, I'll never be able to worship freed. And then we have the audacity under the new covenant. Out of a fear that he won't forgive us. To not worship in freedom. And I'm not just talking about singing. We have the audacity to look at the power of the new covenant and say, yeah, I'd rather just sit here in my sorrow and my pain than approach you and have to deal with you as a personal God. And for you, if that's you tonight, I want to tell you, the beauty of the character of God goes way further than your doubt. The depth and the grace of a good God goes way deeper and way farther than, you, than your fears can ever even fathom. You can't fear enough for Him. See? Now look at this. I want to show you verse 10 and then we're going to back up. But these, conscious of the, worship, uh, the worshiper, deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Okay? The staff and I, uh, several days ago, we sat around and we looked at this passage and we were like, not so sure. You know? Seems a little bit strange. Kind of a weird passage. I see its meaning and I see its understanding. And then listen, as he does... God began to speak, and I want to take you on that journey. You guys with me? You guys ready to go? I started to think about how much I think about the access that I have to God. In other words, in the image of the, of the courtyard, in the image of the tent and the Holy of Holies, do you understand that what Christ has done is like he's just whipped right through it, torn the veil, and now you just, you just go right to God, instant access. And I was thinking about all these things. And the question that I rarely ask is why would I ever want to encounter God on a personal level? I'm always asking, how can I? And then I'm always answering that question with Jesus. I access God personally because of Christ, but I rarely ask, why would I want to? The reality is I know full well that many of you find yourself, this is your expression of faith, corporate. You don't know what to do when you get alone with the Lord. You don't know what reading the scripture looks like or praying looks like. You have no concept of that. And I believe part of it is you don't see the value. You understand you have access, which is nice and a good thing to go home by. But you don't, you don't see the importance or understand why it is that you would ever want to meet God in an intimate, real way. So I want to help you tonight. Can I do that? Now listen. Unbelievable story in the scripture. One of my daughter's favorite. Jesus uh, gets gets pleaded by, beckoned to, by this uh, man named Jairus. His daughter is incredibly sick. Now Jesus begins the journey to go heal Jairus' daughter, and listen, on the way this happens, okay? As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. I love this image, Luke 8. Jesus' popularity is growing, 
And because of, their popul- because of his popularity and on his journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, his path to die, people are pressing in on him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. A woman in tremendous turmoil has literally spent every dime that she has seeking help. And she's squandered it all and she's still sick. No physician can help her. She spent it all. And so she's sitting there, listen, in pain, in turmoil, remorse, not knowing what to do. Verse 44, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Now, if you know this story, and some of you do, this is kind of where we stop. Great moment. Jesus goes on from here to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. That's pretty awesome. What happens next in this story, my friends, is what's most significant. Look at this. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? Right. Now, Peter, like you and I, kind of finds humor in this question. Jesus looks around. There's a big crowd around him. He says, who has touched me? Peter said, Master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you. Essentially, what, G- what Peter's doing is saying, like, seriously, Jesus? Like, who's not touching you right now? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> what, like who, who, what do you mean? This is a silly question. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Look at what happens next. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. This woman has encountered the power of a real God, and she comes trembling. I wish we trembled more. I wish we trembled at all. Everything in her is shaking because she's just been healed. And she has just experienced and encountered something so real that she can't even speak of. And all she's doing is trembling because of the power. But she comes trembling and falling down before him because she doesn't know what else to do. Declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. I wish we trembled more. And I believe we're not trembling more because we're not encountering God on the personal level. I believe we would be trembling a whole lot more in awe of God's character a whole lot more if what was happening, the fruit of our corporate, was to go home and encounter God as the person. But that's not even the start of it. Then he said to her, verse 48, daughter, your faith has made you well. Do you understand? Remember when he sends out the lepers, the 10 of them, and he heals them, says, go show yourself to the priest. Remember who came back? The one, right? His whole, his whole teaching is gratitude. He never says your faith has healed you. What does he say here? This woman has been to every physician. She spent her wages trying to get healthy. But what Jesus says is, you believe that when you touched me, something would happen. You believe that. And so your faith has healed you. And then he says this. Go in peace. 
I've wondered, why would I ever want to encounter God on the personal level? Why wouldn't I want to go back to the old covenant? Why wouldn't I want another man representing me? Why wouldn't I want to put myself back in the rhythm and the structure and the form and the fashion? You want to know why? Because the same access to the, that that woman has as Jesus walks by and she perceives him to be the God, this man, this God man has power and she reaches out and just touches him. That same access that she has in this one moment of time as he's passing by and she presses in, that's the same access that you have every minute of every day. She has it in one moment as Jesus passes by and the opportunity to reach out to the person of Christ is yours every minute of every day. And we sit back and wonder, why should we experience and encounter God on the personal level? Because maybe, just maybe, then he'll say these words, go in peace. And that is the mantra of the gospel. Go in peace. Go in peace. Over and over and over and over and over. And every time you pray and every time you seek the scripture and every time you hear, that's the constant mantra of the person in Christ. Go in peace. I know it seems hectic. I know it seems like it's in turmoil. I know it seems like all this stuff is going down. I know this seems like God doesn't have it in control. I know all of this seems that way. But listen, go in peace. Go in peace. Rest in peace. It's in peace, my friends, that you will find salvation because that's what I've come to bring, peace between God and man. And so every time I find myself in my room, by the river, my closet, in this front lobby, with the scripture opened, and I'm wondering to myself, why would I ever want to encounter God on the personal level? I want to tremble because I've heard the words again, go in peace. And so I look at these words. And I wonder when the church will finally wake up. Turn from their old covenant ways. And long to encounter a God who is breathing the message that you most need to hear. Go in peace. Your junk isn't big enough. Go in peace. There's not enough stuff that you're struggling with. Go in peace. All the junk that you're dealing with, go in peace. Your financial struggle, go in peace. Your relationship stuff, that you're, go in peace. All your financial turmoil, go in peace. All the questions you have about your future, go in peace. And if we hear that, Straight from the messenger every day. Do you understand how significant that is into our existence? It changes everything. But we sit. And all we want is the convenient. The things that stir us. The things that shake us. But what if finally what made us tremble. Was the complete access we had to a good God. Every minute of every day. Let's stand together. For those of you struggling, you came here just burdened and feeling the weight of the world it seems 
Listen. The full power of the God who made you is at your access because of Christ. The scripture says that the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk but of power. The promise of the scripture is that when we come to faith in Him that He seals us with His Holy Spirit. That literally God is residing in us. What would it look like to leave here not because of form or fashion or ritual or discipline but to long to tremble by encountering the realness of a God when no one else is around straight from the scripture straight through prayer straight through worship straight through obedience and the message over and over and over that you'll hear is go in peace go in peace